Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkoff, and I am here in our studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK with... Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, at the repository of all conventional wisdom. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> the wisdom of the ages. The wisdom of the ages, sorry, is David Sanger of the New York Times and in Stanford, California, uh, waiting for the aftermath of Donald Trump's short and fat comments. Uh, by way of incoming missile from North Korea, is Corey Shockey, Stanford University. <laughs> um, well, the president's had quite a trip, you know, for like 24 hours. He behaved himself and everybody was like, new Trump, new Trump. And then, oh, of course, there was old Trump. And, you know, as he got a little bit crankier and a little bit, you know, more out of control, the trip turned into a fiasco. He got nothing from anybody. Um, he buttered up the Chinese. He kissed up to Duterte. He defended Putin. Meanwhile, the TPP countries all signed up and said, hey, we'll do TPP without you. Um, and, uh, it, you know, by the end of this trip, you know, Trump is attacking, you know, intelligence community figures overseas. Uh, and so what I thought I'd do is just start out by letting everybody here vent, open up, talk about Trump and his trip, Rosa. <laughs> well, first of all, <laughs> I think Ed Luce predicted this in our last episode. He said, this is the problem. Trump should never be allowed to go on a trip that lasts for more than maybe 36 hours because he can behave for roughly 36 hours. And then he gets bored or irritated or something and he goes bonkers. Uh, and that is, in fact, what we've seen. Um, second of all, no, this is not surprising. This is this is what this is what we expected. Uh, and third, it would be cute and amusing if it weren't uh, uh, possibly uh, devastating to the world. Um, if it were just if it were just a sitcom, it would be so adorable. The way our president can't control himself, that would be cute. But that, it's not that zany. And that's all president. I have. That zany old president <laughs> tweeting his zany old tweets. Um, um, but yeah, no. So it's 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 upsetting in all the ways that uh, we we expected it to be upsetting. The I think that what we are also seeing here uh, is further proof of another hypothesis that we've we've aired on this, which is just that the rest of the world has figured out that the U.S. is is a wall uh, and will be a wall, and that the trick to their success, which which may be uh, 
in some ways inconsistent with America's interests, but from their perspective, it's not their job to worry about our interests. But from their perspective, the secret to success is you you distract Trump and manage him by flattering him. Uh, and then meanwhile, uh, you just do whatever you want to do. And that's 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 exactly what we've seen on this trip. Well, Corey, as I, w- I was on MSNBC earlier this week and I was asked about this. And I said that Donald Trump is the cheapest date on the global stage because <laughs> all you got to do is, you know, flatter him, show him a good time and he'll do anything you want. And I think that's the message that he's delivered to these anything, leaders. David? Well, I mean, I it could Maybe. be. It could I, be. I, 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 I don't want to hear it, guys. I do not want to hear it. But, but do you, Corey, as the having retired the tiara of optimism, give us the upside. What were the good things that happened? What was great about the Trump trip? The, the, the TR of optimism uh, in the last episode was replaced with the crown of entropy, yeah, the thorny right. crown of entropy. <laughs> so I do think there were a couple of good things from the president's trip. It is non-trivial that he made it longer than Rosa's 36 anticipated hours. And by that I, you mean by that you mean the longer he's out of the country, the days. better it is for us. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, the weather prevented him from going to the demilitarized zone in Korea. That was probably good for many right. reasons. His speech in Seoul, South Korea, to the parliament uh, was tough without being uh, provocative. I thought the orchestration of the administration to have the three carrier group exercises with South Korea uh, just after the president's speech was well orchestrated. I thought his trip to Japan was terrific. Um, that I agree with you, David, that he that you know a little bit of glitz and a little bit of ass kissing. And President Trump behaves himself well for a while. The Japanese were smart to figure that out. And I think no foreign leader um, uh, manages Donald Trump better than Shinzo Abe does. But even in those circumstances, the president just fundamentally doesn't understand trade and fundamentally doesn't understand the way in which our trade policy uh, cements political and security relationships and benefits us all. So I think the leading edge of the extended downside was that the president um, hit the North, hit the South Koreans and hit the Japanese on trade. And that was even before the real bad stuff started, which is his behavior at APAC. Um, and the part of the trip in Vietnam and the Philippines. And there he's on a, a luge ride towards holding hands with the worst kind of dictators, saying nothing about human rights in either Vietnam or the Philippines. Uh, and, and then that lunatic tweet storm over the weekend. Well, that pretty much sums it up. It did find some positives there. Uh, Didn't I do good? Yeah, no, no. That was that was pretty good. I actually I have a positive, which is Donald Trump is the first president to actually use the lingo I think we ought to be using about the Asia Pacific region and refers to it as the Indo Pacific region. 
sort of re reframing things, and I think a good way. And they actually have pursued the quad talks, which hasn't really been pursued. Uh, I forgot about the quad talks. You're right. That was great. And I'd like to see the quad talks and all those deep state radio nerds out there. The, you know, the idea of, you know, talks like that that have a name that's an insider name. That's the kind of thing that they really like. But the idea that the United States is actually forming some kind of political conversation with the big countries that are necessary to counterbalancing China, that's actually good. And I don't know how it got fit into a schedule because so much of what he did was just unexpurgated crap. Um, well, he's, he did have that weird hand-holding thing going on with uh – uh, Asian leaders. Yeah, that, that was that produced some some good footage. Well, David, you're a journalist. Um, Am I? It, well, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> you say. So David. so so you say. If if all these things are true and and not made up, but what do you think of the president of the United States sort of cozying up and Duterte calling? You know, journalists all spies and so forth. And Trump is like, ha, 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 ha. And what do you think of Trump going to China and saying, no, the Chinese didn't want to ask questions, so we're not going to ask questions. I mean, it did seem like there was a kind of a subtext of anti-media pro-authoritarianism in this trip. Well, I was glad, David, that it was a subtext of it, because usually when the president's here, they don't re they don't take that to subtext level. They just do like enemies of the people out in in, in public. Um, look, I think the best part of the trip, as Corey suggested earlier on, was the speech to the um, South Korean parliament. And uh, shortly after he did the speech, I think I tweeted something out that I meant as a compliment that said <laughs> that said that this speech was in the tradition of speeches that other American presidents from uh, Bush to Obama have given in South Korea before. It was tough about the North Koreans. It did not devolve into uh, name-calling. There was no little rocket man in it and so forth. And while I didn't think that it moved the ball very much, it certainly sort of laid out a traditional American approach to dealing with North Korea. I got it from both ends here. The left said I was normalizing the president by comparing him to, to other uh, humans. Bush and Obama and others who had given the speeches. And the, um, and the, the, the Trump uh, advocates said that I was maligning the president by suggesting that he was doing exactly what his failed <laughs> predecessors had done. <laughs> so it was in the usual department of you can't win. I thought that was only true when I was on Deep State Radio, but it turns out it's just true in life. It's true in life. I always thought, you know, I always thought, look, I'm a centrist. People on both sides are going to like me, and the opposite turned out. I'm a centrist. Yeah. Everybody hates you. That's um, it. That's it. So, um, uh, but let me th let me go quickly to, to your question, which is, um, yeah, what get around to that. Get around to that. Why don't you? Yeah, get around yeah, to that. Um, what happened when he showed up with authoritarians? These were the easiest mistakes to avoid. So a few months ago, a transcript leaked out uh, from the Philippines of the conversation between President Trump and President Duterte. And you know how the State Department always says, listen, we may not talk about human rights in public, but it's much more effective to do this in private. But we, so we read on the it transcript, <laughs> and what did we discover? It never came up once except when the president said, you know, you're doing a heck of a job with those um, 
drug dealers, we could use a little of that kind of help here in the United States. Well, I don't think what we're really looking for is um, extrajudicial killings in the United States. We have enough of those already, but uh, it, it, we, it, seemed, we it, do. it seemed to be – well, I'm sorry. We don't by – led by the government. We just have sort of mass shootings, right? Um, but uh, you know, it was a lost opportunity to make a point to an American ally. And um, – so, it, it, but it was, it's worse than that, David. Right? I mean, it's not just that he doesn't bring it up; it's that he he actively suggests that it's awesome. That it that it's it's just <laughs> it's fine, encouraging. Right? So, yeah, it's so like, hey, that that's that. really good for <laughs> you, Duterte. It's right. really hard then, to shoot those kids who are drug dealers. <laughs> they're so much smaller and they're harder targets. <laughs> oh, no, right. So David. remember when when <laughs> you remember when Bill Clinton would go to China and the Republicans would beat up on him for not raising human rights, or you know, when almost anybody would go to Vietnam, including President Bush and President Obama, and the question was, how hard are you going to push, you know, the fact that they are uh, violating human rights and have, uh, you know, a relatively dubious uh, election system set up? We heard none of that uh, on this trip, and it was a little mystifying. Yeah, but Rosa, this is dead. We don't do that anymore. Human rights. Human um, rights. Well, I was thinking – so Human Rights Watch uh, says that there have been 7,000 extrajudicial executions in the Philippines under Duterte, about 2,000 of them under 2,000 carried out by the Philippine National Police. That's a lot of uh, murders and, and that's – you know, let's, let's be clear that when we say extrajudicial execution, we're just talking about government forces uh, going out and shooting people they don't happen to like. Uh, in an effort to quote clean up the streets, I, I mean it's it's a it is at a level that should it ever reach an international court, it would be considered a crime against humanity. Uh, this is not just somebody playing a little tiny bit fast and loose with civil rights here. This this guy is a is a presiding over a regime that is murdering uh, its own citizens on a mass scale. Uh, which raises the question, why did they send the president to begin with? Which I mean, indeed, the most, yeah. But, it's, but, it's, but, it's shocking. but there's a Trump Tower in Manila. There's a Trump Tower in Manila, right. No, it, it, it is shocking to me because I think one of the things, you know, I, I mean, so if I can take a step back and think where, where my anthropological hat it's fascinating the way Trump. By the way, is. I'm here in the studio, and her anthropological and it's, it's, hat. It is a sight is to a see. Sight to see. <laughs> it's um, pointy, isn't it? It is pointy. Yeah, it's, it's got all stars the on it. Shrunken heads of um, her students, actually. But but no, I mean, I mean, it is kind of fascinating, right? Because one of the things about Trump is that he is completely rejecting all of the norms about what it is to be an American president that have been embraced for decades by both parties, um, and. From a sort of anthropological perspective, it's sort of fascinating to watch everybody try to try to make sense of this, try to figure this out, and try to figure out is there anything left. But 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 no, I you know, until Trump, every U.S. president has felt con compelled to at least pretend to care about human rights. They might not really care. They might be willing to trade them away for cooperation on counterterrorism or trade deals or something else, but they have to pretend to care. Trump is really the first president we've ever had who doesn't even pretend to care, which is right. amazing. Well, well, let's build let's build on that, Corey. It's 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 it it goes beyond that. 
It's not that he doesn't pretend to care. He celebrates these people. He embraces these people. These are his favorite people, whether it's the Saudis. I mean, Duterte was one of the first people he called. He still has yet to say anything bad about Putin, um, which we saw again. You know, I mean, the simplest thing in the world for this guy whose world is on the verge of collapsing in on him because of ties to Russia, where there are now reports that there were 30 separate contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians during the campaign, um, the simplest thing in the world would be for him not to say anything, not to have the meeting. But he can't resist. He is drawn to the abuse of power like a moth to the flame. (laughs) So, David, David, I thank you for that opportunity to expand on Rosa's comments. (laughs) Yes. Please. I, I do... I absolutely agree with both of you. It's not just that the president isn't comfortable with the language of speaking values. He clearly not only doesn't believe them, but doesn't even see value in going through the motions. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of Donald Trump's view of America in the world, that he does not understand that the reason American hegemony comes to us at such a low cost relative to anybody else who's ever tried to govern the international order is because of the soft power of our values, that people believe we stand for something more than our own ability to do what we want in the world, and that we have a code of ethics that we are accountable to. And Donald Trump just clearly doesn't believe any of that stuff, as was on display yet again when he was in Vietnam and the Philippines. Well, you know, David, when I was thinking about this, and I've been watching all the news reports and reading articles and, you know, following sort of how this trip goes, and, you know, there has been this this impulse that exists among the nerd community out there to draw Hey, those are our listeners. No, tread well, softly, David, for you tread upon me. Yeah, well, yeah I know. I took my shoes off for this, though. Um, the, 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 Better if you put them back on, David. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to think about that. I'm in the small yeah. studio with David. Um, I, I would like him to keep his shoes on. Um, but th- there is this tendency out there in the sort of you know punditocracy to say, oh well, let's let's draw some conclusions about Trump's foreign policy from this trip. And you know you sort of draw conclusions. You know he's open to flattery. He doesn't much rely on other people. He, you know, Which is not he, exactly a foreign policy stance. No, but but you know he. I, well, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> is that you know he he. When I look at it, there is no grand strategy. There is there is one thing. There's narcissistic personality disorder. And the foreign policy of the United States has become Trump's narcissistic well, personality disorder. In other words, it's about him. And if you ask him, is a relationship in good shape? His response will be, they like me. Right. Well, so can I be provocative and say (laughs) one might one might that would be a change. One (laughs) might say that that has always been American foreign policy. We've just tried to hide it, and Donald Trump simply reveals what has always been the case, which is that American foreign policy is all about us uh, and all about being liked. And that's and and it's just that everybody else has had the social graces to pretend that we give a hoot about other parts of the world. But that's not what I'm saying. 
He doesn't care about us. No, he cares about him. He cares about okay, him. Okay, fair point. Fair point. Right. <laughs> right. It's a, it's it's something it's something right. of a distinction. True. True. Uh, you know, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't care about American interests. He cares about Trump's reception. Now, David, as you watch this, and as you're, you know, uh, uh, an old hand at at these things, and as your comparison to, of his trip was to past presidents. What do you think? Do you think Rose's theory is right, or do you think this is something different? There has always been an element in American foreign policy, and on this Rosa is right, to the personal relationship between a president and his counterparts. The Japanese have always made that a much bigger issue, back to you know Nakasone and Ronald Reagan. Um, the Chinese made it an issue from the time Nixon uh, – when it's China, sometimes it's been stronger and sometimes it's been weaker. But there's always been uh, an element of the constancy of policy, by and large, um, and then how well a president can go develop a relationship is, has been all about how well they can execute the policy. Here, it's all about the relationship. And it's not only in the uh, foreign relationships. You saw it in the president's description of whether or not he believed the intelligence he's still caught in this about the Russian interference in the election. So in that particular uh, example, he initially seemed to suggest that he disbelieved the American um, uh, intelligence, but believed uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. And when he was called out on that, he said, well, I now believe the American intelligence because it comes from People I appointed and trust, he's thinking Pompeo and, and Coates, when, of course, it's the same intelligence that was developed by the people he had just dismissed as political hacks. So it but it also politicizes the system to suggest yeah. that whoever's at the head of it is the only thing, is the only difference between our intelligence community behaving professionally or not. And that, too, is profoundly unfair to wait, them. Wait, wait, it, It's also wait. why he believes you can take apart the State Department, because he said the other day, you know, foreign policy is all about him. Normalizing, normalizing, normalizing. My normalizing alert is going on here, off here. Uh, this, this is not, you know, this is not a, a situation of um, uh, to Trump seem to say something and then he moderate i was on one of these tv shows and a new york times reporter said well that's not actually what he said you know it's, no he said that he said that he believed putin he said that you know that he you know he attacked comey and clapper and you know the 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 people who were in charge of the community you know do you think he's a thing about people whose last names begin with c clinton comey clapper hmm. maybe that's it but but the point is, he did all these awful things, and then he sort of moderated it a little bit. Um, but but he, there is no evidence to suggest that he actually believes this stuff. That that he actually believes this community. There is every bit of evidence to suggest he believes Putin. Um, but let me let me. I want to change the subject here because I we have a limited amount of time, and and I and I and since we're on the intelligence community here. Uh, there are problems at the top, obviously, with Trump and and some of his hand-appointed guys, and there's problems in the relationship between the intelligence community and Trump. But there are also some problems deep within the bowels of the intelligence community. 
And the David Sanger, as we know, is the bowels of the intelligence community correspondent <laughs> for the New York Times. Um, <laughs> um, and with two of his colleagues wrote absolutely stunning must-read piece on a problem that the National Security Agency is having right now, has, you know, hasn't figured out how to get its arms around, is equated with being, you know, worse or is, is stated as being worse than the problems caused by Snowden. Um, and maybe, David, if you could really, given the amount of time, sort of give us a two to three minute summary of what you found and what you think the implications are. Sure. Well, the short version of this, which I a story that uh, I worked on with my colleagues Scott Chain and Nicole Perlroth, who are two of the best cyber and intelligence people you can imagine in American journalism, um, basically comes down to this. In August of last year, 2016, as we were all focused on the early evidence of the Russia hack, there was another hack going on. We saw the first publication of documents that looked like they came out of the deepest corners of the National Security Agency and were being published by a group called that called itself the Shadow Brokers. And this was worse than Snowden stuff because Snowden had described the code names and some broad descriptions of NSA programs to hack into foreign computer systems or listen in on Angela Merkel and others. But this was the actual source code. That is to say, the computer code that they use and develop at an inside an office that used to be called the Tailored Access Operations Division to break into foreign computer systems, find vulnerabilities and do it. So this is basically, they got into the arsenal and they began publishing this stuff. And we thought, well, somebody would go find the culprit fairly quickly. But it turned out that 15 months later, the stuff is still dribbling out and they still haven't figured out whether the culprit was an insider or several insiders, whether the leakage is still going on. And while they all believe that the Russians are behind the, the publication of this material, much as they published uh, the emails during the Clinton campaign and, and all that, they can't quite figure out what the connection is between those two. And this has gotten to be so bad that there are searches going on inside the NSA for who's responsible. They have ended up um, uh, giving so many lie detector tests to people, casting so many people under suspicion that very good talent is leaving the NSA. Uh, and it's somewhat remarkable that uh, the director of the NSA, who also runs U.S. Cyber Command, Admiral Michael Rogers, has survived to this point because President uh, Obama thought about firing, and it was it was recommended by uh, General Clapper, the head of uh, director of national intelligence under Obama's time, and Ash Carter, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time. They left office without President Obama taking action. President Trump has reappointed um, uh, Admiral Rogers for at least the next year. So then the question is. Do these losses suggest that the U.S. is not really ready for this world of offensive cyber because it can't protect its own weapons? And how do you explain in public the fact that parts of these weapons were picked up by the North Koreans and the Russians, reformed into new cyber weapons, and shot back at us in the form of WannaCry in the spring and a Russian attack on Ukraine? It's a little, David, like losing parts of a Tomahawk missile or its technology 
and then discovering that someone's shooting it back on American cities. Well, that was a rhetorical question, right? It's clear that we're not ready. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, you know, I mean, it's it's clear that, that we're not ready here. But, Corey, l- let's just break this into its component parts and let's take a breather from beating up on Trump, okay? Um, let's beat up on Obama. Uh, you know, a, a number of things happened towards the end of his watch where his decision was effectively to do nothing or to do too little. Um, and, you know, we've discussed over the years some of those in terms of foreign policy terms. But on the intel side, you know, you have a stance on the Russia hack, which was muted, to say the least, and and, and in retrospect, too muted. And and now you've got this. What what do you what what do you think about the origins of this? And to take it a step further, does this really require a deep rethink of how we approach this kind of uh, capacity, including the fact that we don't seem to be training senior level policy officials who even understand this? And thus, oversight is difficult. I agree with you that oversight is difficult, um, and but I'm, and I agree with you that President Obama failed in a crucial capacity as Commander in Chief to understand that we are at war every day in the cyber realm, and. Uh, not to think his way through, uh, what are we going to do about this? What's our strategy? How do we, can we establish deterrence in this realm? How do we strike back at people doing us damage? How do we recruit the best talent in the world and keep it? Um, so, so all sorts of Obama failures. As David was, uh, was talking through his outstanding article and he got to the point about, you know, President Obama chose to do nothing on this in his last months. I, I was clocking up the number of times David uh, Rothkopf and I have banged on that drum in the last year. Because um, President Obama ought to have done something and done something dramatic. I doubt firing Mike Rogers was either sufficient to the need or the right kind of signal to send the people who attacked us. Um, Particularly so, during the middle of the Russia investigation. Yes, exactly. But, but yes, we ought to have a national level discussion about what are our means of managing the war we are fighting and losing in the cyber domain. Second, who do we want in charge of that? Third, how do we reestablish the public-private trust that the Snowden revelations and several other things did such damage to so that the American government can draw talent and can work in conjunction with some of the best people in the world in this domain who are in closer to my telephone area code than closer to the East Coast telephone area codes. Well, that's an important point, and it, 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 I want to turn to Rosa next and, and, and pick up on this. I, I've, I've been recently looking at schools of international affairs and schools of um, public policy to see what they're teaching. 
Uh, and as I think we may have mentioned here, one of the things that really struck me was, for example, that only three of the top 20 schools, top 10 of international affairs, top 10 of public policy, teach ethics as a requirement. And eight of them don't offer a course in ethics. Um, but none of the top 20 require a course in technology. Um, there are all sorts of nuclear studies programs. But we are not training next generation national security leaders, um, except perhaps in the military. But we are not training them to have the conversation, to even ask the right questions. They are not up to, and you know what I mean by this, they are not up to David Sanger levels of knowledge. That's pretty oh, bad. That's pretty bad. Uh, but in other words, David, as yeah. an experienced reporter on this, knows what questions to ask. What, but but our, our leaders, our senior policymakers, don't. I think that has always been a problem in technical fields, not not just this one. Um, but I, I do think you're, you're absolutely right, and Corey's right, as usual. Um, I, I think that there are a couple different pieces of this. Um, Tom Ricks is fond of saying that uh, if the service academies – look at a place like West Point, famous as an engineering school – uh, and Tom Ricks is fond of making the point that if West Point was serious about preparing military leaders for current conflicts as opposed to past conflicts, they would be training fewer engineers and more people in c computer science. Uh, uh, that that would be what they would be shifting to in terms of a sort of major focus area. And and I do think it is true that that in general – uh, the service academies, our schools of international affairs, our law schools, uh, we, you know, we're very weak when it comes to cyber. And there is always a problem of the people who know about the law and policy often don't understand the technology. And the people who know about the technology often don't understand the law and policy. Um, I, you know, this is part of a, a, a longer discussion of how does the U.S. government, which doesn't pay all that well, attract and retain top talent? Because I think one of the many problems in this area in particular is that if you're a bright 22-year-old who knows about computer science, um, you can make a lot of money in the private sector and what the government is going to pay you is peanuts. Uh, you know, if, if we're really, really serious about having top talent, you know, that we, we either need to be paying people a lot more or we need to be getting them when they're even younger – and convincing them that as a, as a part of public service that they need to be spending five years or ten years or twenty years being underpaid relative to their private sector peers, and we're not we're not really doing either of those things. The only thing I would say, you know, in the NSA's defense, I suppose, um, is that it's not that clear to me that anybody else is better at this. We're bad at it, but I I, I do think that. You know, sometimes we talk about the Russians as if they're these incredible masterminds and they have this unbelievable, you know, canny ability to to run rings around us. Uh, and yeah, they can run rings around us. But but I, I, I think I hope and trust that in various ways we're also running rings around them, you know, that that I think – the Russians, the United States, every state actor and plenty of non-state actors, we're all feeling our way into this sort of brave new world of cyber and not, nobody's that good at it yet. Um, you know, that we – is it scary that the National Security Agency can't can't protect its own secrets? Yeah, that's scary. I don't know that anybody out there is doing any better quite frankly, um, which isn't a lot of consolation 
Uh, I think it makes it an even more unstable world in which in which it, this is an incredibly unpredictable arena. But at least in terms of sort of culpability of the agency, sort of what do you expect when you have an area with this kind of rapid technological change? Everybody's struggling, uh, and nobody's well, good at it yet. Ro- Rosa, you're you're absolutely right uh, on that. But I think it's made more complicated by the fact that the barriers to entry are so low here. You know, yeah. we're used to fighting one or two adversaries, and the question was, did they know how to get uranium and plutonium and know what to do with it once they had it? And here, of course, as David has pointed out many times, if nuclear weapons are you know hard and expensive, cyber is so cheap it's almost irresistible. And you have other countries that are willing to do things that we're not willing to do or not very good at. And thus, the Russians, while not as good as us technically, are willing to do things in the world of information warfare that we would find as a democracy difficult to go do. The North Koreans are willing to go in and and do things to uh, Sony or steal money from central banks or shoot out weapons that end up taking out the British Health Service. Uh, that we would not be willing to do even if we had the weapon easily at hand, and and we do. So to some degree, it's a question of how do you fight against people who aren't operating by the same rules you are. And then you compound that by the apparent inability to hold on to our own secrets and then the effort by the U.S. government not to admit to that. So when we went to the NSA to talk about this story, uh, not only did they not see us about it, but in their written responses, they came back and said, we're not even going to acknowledge to you that shadow brokers exist, which is the name, of course, of the group that was doing this. Huh. Or that the documents you've seen, the source code you've seen, is original to the NSA and the Tailored Access Operations Unit, although we must have found you know, dozens of members of TAO who said, yeah, that stuff's real. I wrote some of that. This is how the pretense of classification gets in the way of actual security, right? Yep. And as David said, it's a real problem and and will be an increasing one because, as you guys pointed out, the barriers to entry are so low. But also, unlike most military equipment, cyber stuff is inherently dual use. So you can't put it off limits in lots of ways to businesses that are going to be using it and superior in all likelihood to governments. Right. Because as Rosa said, it's business people who are going to be able to hire the best minds. It's business people who are going to have access to the greatest computing power. Typically, they're going to have access to everything you need um, and will have fewer constraints than exist within the government. But the question is, what do we do? Well, and can I add another layer to Corey's comment that we get tripped up sometimes by our own classification system? Um, a couple of years ago, I was out at the NSA uh, talking to some of their senior leaders, and one of the comments that several people made was that uh, because it is so hard, because we're so paranoid about giving security clearances to people with lots of foreign contacts or who were born outside of the United States uh, or who are naturalized citizens of the United States, um, we're having trouble. It's another reason we're, ha- we're having trouble getting top talent. Uh, the majority of mathematics PhD students in the United States at this point are not U.S. citizens. Um, some of them are people and, – and of those who are, many of them are foreign-born. 
um, which is a problem in and of itself. But it also means that when you look at Silicon Valley, when you look at who the leaders are in the private sector in this arena, many of them are foreign born. Uh, They're naturalized U.S. citizens. And we have trouble getting them the clearances so we can even cooperate with them and share information with them. Let's And let's stipulate for the moment that at least some degree of cooperation between the government and, and tech companies would be desirable, leaving aside the controversies about which kinds and surveillance and so forth. Uh, but but so, so our, our fixation on, God forbid, anybody should have any foreign contacts, it, you know, our being self-protective in that arena prevents us from utilizing some of the incredible talent that we have. So we really shoot ourselves in the feet in all kinds of ways here. David, you talk to a lot of people in doing this story, and obviously you've been on this story, writing a book about it. You've written on this before. How broke do these people think the system is broken? And and how what, what suggestions for fixing it uh, are you hearing? Well, it's pretty broken because the nature of cyber weapons are that even if nothing happened, if, if nobody was breaking into your system and stealing them, they go bad pretty soon. They don't have a long shelf life because as every computer system in the world changes, as every weapon system changes, as every communications uh, system changes, you have to alter your weapons to be able to stay inside them. So that's a lot of constant work. But this makes it even worse because we have a system in which clearly somebody is inside and playing with us. So there's that house of mirrors element to it. Um, There's the question that has come up here, which is, are we using classification to cover up how bad the problem is? To which the answer clearly is yes. And wouldn't be the first time that keeping something classified has been used to do that. Um, What is the solution Well, I think we have to think very hard about what we really want to keep secret and not. And the White House, to its credit, is rethinking the process by which it decides which vulnerabilities in the cyber world it reports back to the companies. It goes to Microsoft and says, this is what you need to go fix versus what it keeps for its own arsenal. But that's just a first step. I mean, we need a hard thinking about how we want to use this weapon. Or if we really want to go do it at all, and whether there are some areas we want to keep off limits, like, say, election systems. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is a story that is going to go on and on. We are in the infant days of all of this. Uh, and the only way you can actually understand the infant days of all of this is, um, is by following what David is doing and his colleagues are doing, because this really provides insights. Uh, that the government is not inclined to offer to us, that only through having a free press do we get anywhere near these things. Now, we have three minutes left, and I have three words, and then I would like just open reactions, starting with Rosa. Uh, Judge Roy Moore. (laughs) Judge Roy Moore should resign (laughs) or step down, rather, from his campaign. I suppose you can't really resign when you haven't yet been elected. Uh, but but no, it, it's uh, the number of credible allegations against him is just mounting and mounting. Um, it's 
we're not talking about a criminal prosecution. The statute of limitations is clearly long past uh, on cases of this nature. But uh, this is not really the guy that Republicans should want to be running as a model of uh, probity and virtue here. Um, uh, it's I see I see that Mitch McConnell has now called on him to to step out of the race. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that has any impact on Alabama Republicans. Uh, so far, the signs point to they don't give a hoot. So Cory Gardner, the head of the Republican Senatorial Campaign Commission, also. Uh, not only said that Roy Moore should step aside, but said that if he does, Senate Republicans should expel him from the caucus. If he does not and he's elected, Senate Republicans should expel him from the caucus. And so I am once again donning the tiara of optimism in the likely ill-founded hope that the immorality of my political party has hit rock bottom and we will... Uh, on the basis of Roy Moore's pedophilia, sexual assaults on girls will finally come to our senses and remember that we are a principled political movement. I realize that's wildly optimistic. Boy, it's way yeah, beyond boy, wildly optimistic. The, the, t- the tiara has been, has been rubber cemented to her head. Just a last thought on this. Let's remember that while many members of the Republican Party are coming out today, including um, uh, the speaker and suggesting that uh, Moore has to get out of this race, they weren't enthused about having him in this race before these charges came up, right? I mean, he had a, a, a record uh, that uh, I think made many of them have so many chills that, in fact, you'll remember President Trump couldn't bring himself to support him. That was left to Steve Bannon uh, to go do. So they see in this an opportunity uh, to uh, cut off a candidate who I think they believed would be highly problematic, even without all of these charges, once he got to the Senate. All I can say is the following. Donald Trump has been accused more times of similar forms of abuse than Roy Moore has. And he's the president of the United States. He was on tape talking about doing something that is against the law in every state of the United States. And he's the president of the United States. We have gotten to the point in American politics where party matters more than morality, party matters more than decency, party matters more than common sense. And it is truly a cancer at the heart of American democracy. And all we can hope is that Corey ultimately is right, that there is a bottom, that there is a turning point. I don't even think it's about party, though, David, uh, increasingly. You know, it, it is very much about tribe in a, in a different sort of sense because, you know, the the mainstream of the Republican Party, such as it is, is disowning him. You know, they're, 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 they're saying the only ethically but they, but appropriate— they didn't. Disown Donald they Trump. They didn't disown Donald Trump, but but nevertheless, I mean that that we're we're seeing a real split within the Republican Party. And Donald Trump, I I, I would 
make him an exception because the presidency is weird and complicated. But but nevertheless, you know, I, th- I think this is a huge rift within the Republican Party at the moment, too. I hope so. Um, I hope Corey is right. Uh, folks, we have come to the end of this particular episode. Uh, I want to thank Corey and Rosa and David for another terrific job. I want to thank all of you for joining us out there. There's more to come this week, more about the Asia trip, more about various scandals that are swirling around the president, uh, and as a special focus on the next episode of Deep State Radio, a real deep dive on the gutting of the diplomatic service in the United States government with Nick Burns, former Undersecretary of State for Policy. So please join us again. I think you're going to find that really interesting. And thank you, guys. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.